Hello, and welcome to Innovation Matters. It is the podcast about sustainable innovation. I am your host, Anthony Schiavo. I'm a senior director at Lux Research. Today, it's just the boys, just the fellas. We're going to be talking about a lot of news. Uh, there's a lot of news that's been happening that we haven't caught up with, and so we're going to catch up on it today. Kartik, how are things in sunny, warm, beautiful Amsterdam? Not sunny and warm anymore. Uh, it's been <laughs> raining since 1 a.m. in the morning, and it's been <laughs> it's been quite incessant. So, uh, yeah, the cold weather is back. I guess you'll enjoy that when you come to uh, Amsterdam for the forum. Yeah, I'm looking forward to coming to Amsterdam for the forum, uh, for sure. Although I will immediately be departing for Brussels. Uh, I'm going to go on the record here and say Brussels is the worst city in Europe. Um, any of our listeners in Brussels, don't write in. I don't care about your opinion. Um, I've never, I've, I, like, I've had uniquely terrible experiences in a lot of cities in Europe, um, including but not limited to London. Uh, but but Brussels has always struck me as like just kind of the most depressing city in in Europe. So I'm not. I'm heading to, to Brussels for the conference. You are. What do you yeah, think about Brussels in a week? I don't know. It's just another European city, I suppose. Uh, and apart from the city center, there's nothing special, or maybe I'm wrong. But uh, I've only been to Brussels once, and it was it was okay. All right, just you need mad. to report back, live live correspondent from Brussels. Um. <laughs> see, see if it's improved since Kiava's last visit. Yeah, but uh, Mike, uh, what are you? How are you doing? Good. I'm uh, I'm gearing up to go to the the Urban Future Summit. This uh, this afternoon, um, the uh, the Urban Future Lab in New York is sort of. I mean, I always explain it to Lux people. It's kind of like the Greentown Labs of uh, of uh, of New York. Uh, so they kind of it's like a startup incubator, and it tends to be a little more like software and fintech kind of stuff, uh, more focused on that that sort of thing. They don't have, I think, as much in the way of, you know, labs and machine shops and stuff like that as, as Greentown does, but. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like these like design conferences or these sort of uh, more like future tech conferences always sort of lend themselves to really stupid ideas. Um, <laughs> there well, was it's, this... a bunch of, it's like a big startup pitch, you know, so that's going to be. I don't know. So, Meet some interesting company. I might recruit some podcast guests. Who knows? You might recruit some podcast guests. Bring your microphone. Bring <laughs> your microphone. <laughs> um, okay. And speaking of bad ideas, we're going to start the news rundown with Nucor and Helion. So Nucor is a big steel company. They have announced a collaboration with Helion, which is a fusion power plant developer to build a 500 megawatt fusion power plant. Um, I think more to the point, they have invested 35 million into Helion, which is the actual thing um, because <laughs> developing a 500 megawatt power plant, a fusion power plant is like developing a, I don't know, a, a 500 megawatt alchemical gold uh, production plant in the sense that the technology is roughly, roughly as mature. Uh, but in the fusion space, we also had a, a recent announcement from uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab, a second positive energy uh, fusion reaction, which is to say the specific fusion reaction. The lasers went in, energy came out, and the energy of the lasers going in was less than the energy coming out. 
uh, or I should say the energy coming out was more than the lasers going in. So it's positive energy. That's good. That's good for fusion. Mike, I'm sure that the uh, the scientific reporting community did a good job with this story, right? <laughs> That's what you're going to tell me? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I always feel a little bad, um, like shitting on this stuff because it's, it's, it's an incredible scientific and, and, and technical achievement that, you know, we created fusion in a, you know, human made facility and it it actually, you know, got the reaction going and produced all this energy with it. But uh, I do think a lot of it is, is giving people a little bit of a misleading idea of, of how, sort of practically or commercially significant this is as uh, like you said they i think they they put in about 2.1 megajoules of energy and got like 3.9 back out which is cool but the the energy going in was like just the energy that like actually managed to get into the you know to the reactor vessel or the fuel pellet right the whole system took about 300 megajoules of energy to produce those those 3.9 and then you know it, it almost doesn't matter at this point but if you know to actually convert that energy coming out into a useful form you're only going to be able to do that at like you know max 40 percent efficiency so i mean you know you you're could getting do like a combined heat and power cycle right and that's like 90 percent yeah energy efficient but that also requires putting the fusion reactor in like the basement of a new york city block or whatever right <laughs> 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 it sort of presents its own challenges or, or maybe at a at a steel facility that's probably something you can use waste i don't know but um no it's just like you would not know that from reading most of the commentary about about this including the uh failing new york times as uh as it's been called uh, failing at the science coverage in this, in this case, there's a big write up about it. And it just like, doesn't mention the 300 at all. Really? Um, it really does. Not. <laughs> That's disappointing. It's, it was, it's like, okay, come on guys. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it, it, it but it, I think it just goes to show, I mean, to the point of this, this new core discussion, uh, you know, multiple decades away from, in in the optimistic scenario from anything that's really practically useful so i'm not really it, it, i don't object to Nucor or anybody making an investment in uh, a fusion startup if they you know if they're willing to wait that long or you know accept that it's a very 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 long-term proposition but i'm not really sure what the point of these like saying oh we're gonna build a facility now or we're now building a facility or like when uh i think we talked about it earlier this year when microsoft said that they were doing a ppa with some fusion company and it's like it's, actually with helion with helion <laughs> maybe this is just helion's pr strategy i don't know to like sign up these like fantasy projects announce these fantasy projects yeah, the thing with Helion, which is quite funny for me, at least with this announcement, uh, the difference is they haven't disclosed a timeline. With Microsoft, they said we're going to sell Fusion Electricity by 2028. Uh, with Nucor, they haven't announced that specifically, which I guess is being on the safer side from yeah, a PR standpoint. Said 20, 2030 or after seems like <laughs> a realistic target. I'm quoting from their fact sheet, which is uh, accurate in the sense of after. Yeah, correct. Uh, but one thing with Helion that's quite different to other fusion developers is they're not looking at steady state fusion or they don't need balance of system for the plant. So they're not going to produce steam and then run a steam turbine. They're going to directly use magnetic induction 
to produce electricity from the expanding plasma. Uh, not sure what the engineering challenges are going to be with that. Um, it still doesn't take away the fact that fusion is multiple decades away, even if they're following a pulsed approach. Uh, so I, I guess the idea here is that because Nucor is like the most electric arc remelting of the steel manufacturers, basically they use mostly pure electricity in their facilities, that Helion is a particularly good fit for them because they're unlike presumably, I mean, not, not that any of these fusion companies really have a, a system designed yet per se, but like they're going to produce pure electricity unlike a steam, you know, they're not going to go to steam. And so that's why they're a good fit with Nucor. I guess that's the idea, right? Yeah, so they're going to be powering an electric arc furnace, probably use the electricity to power some electrolyzers, produce hydrogen, use the hydrogen as a reducing agent for the iron ore. Um, I think that's what they would be targeting. And, and that's why Helion is a good fit. Uh, I think for Nucor as well, I think this is another PR move because Nucor has announced a very aggressive decarbonization strategy. They already claim to have reduced, if I'm not wrong, 75% of their carbon emissions already or something yeah, like that they're, they're already pretty much the cleanest steel maker globally again this is mostly a, fa- a function of recycling the the steel which is just the cleanest way to make steel at a baseline um and they are the largest one of the largest recyclers certainly the largest steel recycler in the u.s and so you know that just gets you a long way i mean they've done a bunch of other stuff on top of that i, I don't want to completely write off their their decarbonization efforts but I don't know. I mean, why not, again, why not just invest in a regular nuclear power plant? You know, you could just build a nuclear power plant at a steel mill. No, I, mean, I think I that would be quite difficult. <laughs> I mean, I get it's, that. It's, <laughs> it's well, not about I mean, Dow's, Dow's doing it, right? We, uh, with, it. I mean, Dow is kind uh, of doing chemical it. Chemical space. Well, they're, yeah, it's, it's, it's a pilot, but it's, that's, that's much more... Uh, they're they're putting a co-locating a small modular reactor with uh, X Energy at, at one of their refineries in the uh, facilities in the Gulf Coast. Um, that's you know still risky and and but it's it's much much more mature technology than fusion is. So here here's the question: Is this greenwashing? Yes. <laughs> I mean, as far as the you know saying we're gonna we're gonna be decarbonizing our our steel process with with fusion i mean it, it's you know it, it's that's not happening on a meaningful time frame but the headline is definitely greenwashing i think Nucor yeah. and Helion, I mean, the fact that they're actually investing money historic 500 megawatt fusion power plant is like okay like <laughs> I, I would say the microsoft ppa is like pure greenwashing this is like Okay, like at least you're putting thirty. You know, it's a non-trivial sum of money that that's going into this for sure. So it's you know that's that part is is a legitimate in investment. But yeah, I mean the thing with with uh, co-locating nuclear power, be it fusion or fusion with any other chemicals facility, and I think this also goes, um, you know, I think is applicable to what's going on with Dow and X Energy is that. Uh, they're going to face a lot of regulatory headwinds, especially in terms of what would happen if, you know, something happens at the chemical facility and that risks the nuclear power plant, you know, not not the other way around. And so there are going to be a lot of challenges in implementation. And, and so uh, even if you have a mature technology, I think by the time, if you're in the US, you go to the NRC and you tell them, hey, this is my idea. 
you have like 10,000 pages of documents for licensing, for implementation. There's a lot of back and forth. And so it's quite challenging to even get these, you know, started. So I'm not so sure even if a mature nuclear fission power plant would work for co-location, unless they're like, you know, spread far enough to not be impacted by each other's presence. Our next news item. It is a shell-backed energy storage pilot suspends operations after overheating prompts, in quotes, explosion fears, which are one of my top five least favorite kind of fears, frankly speaking, um, right up there with bear fears, uh, which I have a lot of. But um, <laughs> basically, this is a, a company, uh, MGA Thermal. They're doing a high temperature energy storage, which I think broadly and Kartik, I'm, you know, I'm curious for your perspective on this. It's a good technology or it's a important and, and somewhat necessary technology for the energy transition, right? This ability to store high temperature heat. but Apparently, they are their test unit was supposed to be around 700 degrees centigrade, and it got to around 1,200 degrees centigrade, and the entire shipping container was glowing red, uh, which is again not what you want uh, for your shipping containers. And I, I tried to find like a video of this or a, <laughs> a picture of this. <laughs> I was not actually able to. Um, this this was in Sydney, and you know it was the story was broken by a sort of a local Sydney news uh news organization um but i couldn't i couldn't find could not find the uh the actual story but is this just i feel like this is a little bit this is kind of to me in like the battery fires uh space where it's like okay i would need to do something about that and there are going to be technical and you know engineering solutions to that problem but it's sort of just like hey this is what happens when you do new technology. And, and this is not that big of a deal, frankly. But I don't know, Karthik, it, what do you think about this? Is this a, is this overblown or, or what? I mean, in terms of the necessity for thermal energy storage, I would definitely look at long ener long duration energy storage. And our colleague, uh, Chloe Herrera at Lux Research, did a brilliant report on the levelized cost of uh, long duration storage technologies, which clients who are listening to this podcast, please check out if you already haven't. Um, I would definitely say from a long duration perspective, you can't just keep installing batteries for long duration storage because batteries aren't as energy dense. You need a lot of area, of course, uh, and, and thermal energy storage is definitely much better in that aspect. Um, in terms of this specific development, um, I, I was curious to know why it overheated. Uh, so as because they're, they're storing the heat in metal blocks, um, and, and that's how the technology works and they release it when they want to. So uh, they're still investigating this thing, of course, but is it because there was a cooling system that suddenly stopped functioning? Uh, uh, was there a, any coolant that, you know, passed its critical heat flux for some reason? Um, was there any issues like that that led to a sudden drop in heat transfer? I truly don't know. Uh, I guess we'll find out in time, but uh, curious to hear your thoughts on what, could have possibly yeah, gone I think, wrong. I think yeah. the bad thing, because it's a it's a metal graphite battery. So I think the mm -hmm. the the really bad outcome here is that the thing starts reacting, right? Um, and it starts generating heat, uh, like it's oxidizing or, or otherwise burning, essentially. Um, and, <laughs> that's, and, yeah. Which is what happened at at Chernobyl, right? I mean that that's the the actual part of the actual meltdown. There was like the graphite that was in the containment vessel basically caught fire. So. Yeah. You don't you don't love to see that. I, I would assume they would have thought of that 
and presumably that's not it but that is the thing that sort of like uh came to mind first for me uh is that this this big aluminum graphite block just like was like you know what i'm done i'm out um i think they might have to include some form of uh cooling system on the side to well, maintain temperature and the, use that heat maybe with compressed air or something like that i don't know it might be I guess a, the, the cooling system is just a heat extraction system right i mean like you just take the heat out and you do it for some facility i mean maybe that was the issue it's just like they were just testing the thing and they didn't have anywhere to put the heat that's the thing about heat is you can transfer it right uh you can create it but it's a lot harder to destroy it. Um, we haven't really, <laughs> we haven't really worked out that particular trick yet very well. Actually, I don't know. I mean, how important is heat storage specifically? Uh, not uh, just long duration energy storage, but heat right. storage, Carter. Um, I don't know if it's uh, as important for electricity. Uh, I, I'm not sure if uh, you know going from electricity to heat and then electricity again is as efficient and with always heat you know you're going to have losses because your containment vessel is going to keep dissipating heat nothing is 100% adiabatic stuff like that maybe heat duration i mean heat storage would be quite exciting for uh decarbonizing heat if if from an industry perspective i know that with concentrated solar systems you tend to cycle the heat system every day because otherwise it's just going to get uneconomical to have one uh, thermal energy storage system so yeah i see a lot of interesting applications in the industry maybe maybe mike uh, you also see some applications for electricity or otherwise yeah, I mean, I think when you get into these thermal energy storage systems, right, the round trip efficiency tends to be less, less for, you know, particularly for electricity than it is for, for batteries for sort of obvious reasons. Um, but the, I think the utility of these systems is the ability, you know, if you can cite them places where you can also make use of the heat. And again, like that's to call back to the previous conversation, right? That's why the Dow X energy thing is sort of interesting because they not only can use the electricity produced from that, but they can use a lot of the the heat directly because it's, you know, co-located on site at a, at a refinery. So I think these, these type of thermal energy storage systems are going to be particularly interesting for, uh, for industrial facilities though. Um, you know, safety is going to be a bigger issue at those industrial facilities, but, but in an industrial facility will probably be better uh, prepared to, to deal with it. I mean, it's just, you know, anything that has a lot of energy in a small space, whether it's a thermal storage system, whether it's a lithium ion battery, or whether it's a, you know, big tank of diesel fuel, uh, is going to have some risks to it. And we're, you know, we're pretty good at dealing with the big tanks of diesel fuel and the, and the like right now, we're not as good at dealing with, some of these novel energy storage systems. One of the articles I was reading about this um, uh, this incident in Australia notes that uh, it comes just weeks after a Tesla lithium-ion battery energy storage facility nicknamed Big Bessie went up in flames in Queensland. <laughs> so it's like, okay, there's a, there's a, there's some other other issues here. Um, but that's you know, I, I tend to also come down on the side of we are going to have, it is going to be very important to learn how to, to manage these things and, uh, and, and manage the, the safety of these, these systems. But 
I think, especially relative to, you know, what we do now with, with, with fossil fuels, hydrocarbon fuels, uh, it should be, it's something that I think will be manageable. Speaking of things that are heating up and possibly exploding, we're going to turn to our, our, our next piece of news. And this is something that's been going on for a while. I've been wanting to talk about it for a while. Um, and that's, of course, the, the United Auto Workers strike in the United States. Um, if you've somehow missed the story, which is a big, big story, the United Auto Workers is striking multiple facilities across the big three automakers in the United States. That would be Ford General Motors uh, and Stellantis, I believe. Um, maybe I messed that up. And one of the, I mean, the core issue, there's a lot of different issues, right? It's, fallout from the 2008 bailout and the you know pay cuts and and pay freezes from that um you know the current state of manufacturing in the united states but one of the big issues is the future of the electric vehicle industry and particularly you know concerns about electric vehicle manufacturing and the impact that that will have on jobs both the direct impact on oh, these maybe electric vehicles are require less labor, which I don't particularly buy into that as an argument. Um, but more to the point that automakers will use the electric vehicle manufacturing uh, transition as a, a way to transition from union facilities to non-union facilities, which has already been happening, right? You know, if you look at where automakers are, are opening plants, they're opening them in, South Carolina and Georgia and these other, you know, right to work Republican non-union states. And they're, they're not opening them as much in uh, Detroit. Right. So that is and, and particularly because, you know, the United States government is aggressively funding these companies. Right. They're giving them big loans. You've got the, the DOE doing the SK on Blue Oval thing. And, you know, one of the things like I think Ford put that project on pause and basically said the unions are making it so we can't build this right um they, i mean they cited concerns about labor costs which is i think pretty much just code for unions but so far the strike has been fairly successful and um you know a number of the automakers i believe all three automakers at this point have agreed to include ev and battery manufacturing facilities in a broader union agreement they're still haggling over what that agreement will look like. And there's been the strikes are sort of continuing to ratchet up uh, across these different facilities, but it looks like the, the UAW is, is broadly going to get its way, at least on including these facilities into whatever deal it is. So there's a couple things. Um, I guess I, I would, I would ask to the, the podcast here to the, the brain trust one, what, is the responsibility or, or what do you see as the role for the Biden administration here? Um, you know, Joe Biden's been relatively supportive. I mean, he visited the picket line and, you know, a number of people in Washington were like clutching their pearls about this, which I found really hilarious. But also, um, I'm just curious for your thoughts a bit more generally on labor, the sort of labor relationship element of uh you know, the energy transition and the sustainable transition a bit more generally. So Mike, I'll kick it over to you first. Uh, and, and cause I'm curious for your, your read on this and then Kartik, um, I'll pass it to you next. 
Yeah, I think the the public policy angle and and the and the Biden administration is is really critical here, right? That's a that's a core part of the union's argument, right? As if taxpayer dollars are going to support and fund all of these these facilities, then you know, sort of the least that they can do is make sure that they're good paying jobs and and uh, and well protected ones and and union ones. Um, particularly since the unions are big allies in general of the of the Biden administration, so it's it's not that surprising that they're you know Democratic politicians in the U.S. and are pretty pretty aligned to to unions. Um, you know there is definitely a certain tension with the industrial policy, right, and trying to do all this reshoring um, that that the Biden administration is doing and and these kind of pro-union um, and the pro-union stance and that, I mean, if you look at countries that have been very successful with sort of industrial policy, you know, notably China or, or uh, uh, you know, even like the U.S., like in the, you know, very early days of, you know, Hamilton and, and the early, late 19th, late 18th, early 19th century. All right. A lot of that was based on basically suppressing wages and making these these countries attractive for manufacturing through 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 low wages, uh, which is obviously not the direction that we want to go or realistically can go, you know, in the U.S. or in Europe uh, or or other you know Japan other other developed countries. Um, but I think you know the key point with this is that the it is true that the electric vehicle manufacturing for a variety of reasons is going to be a bit less, you know, is, is going to be less labor intensive than traditional automotive manufacturing will be. Will it though? Like why? I there's fewer parts and I think it's, it's, uh, it, yeah, but in, in does that meeting. really translate to, to fewer jobs? Like, like, is it a supply chain thing? Like, because I don't really see auto assembly as having fewer jobs. Like, like where where is the job? Like, it's just going to be the supply chain is going to shrink somewhat, and we're not going to have as many like fuel line like filter plants and like that. All the little bits and bobs are going to go away. And... I think it's that, and yeah, like an electric motor is just less complicated. It, you know, and even even supply chain aside, you know the the engines and things are generally built internally at these, at these big three automakers. I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert in automotive manufacturing. Yeah. Uh, actually, I think the concerns that the labor union or the, or the workforce in general has is, or oh, these robotic arms are going to come and replace our jobs because EVs are simpler machinery to attach uh, or, or assemble. Uh, and so we are going to run out of jobs. Uh, maybe I'm too young to say this, but uh, in, in Willy Wonka, uh, Ch- Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, you know, Charlie's dad loses his job. And then in the end of the movie, uh, he ends up, repl- uh, you know, uh, becoming a mechanic that fixes the machine. Maybe education is what is necessary to bring the labor force up to speed and tell them, hey, we are going to use robots and stuff, but we will educate you to become the ones that, you know, maintains these robots and, and, and you know, fixes them if there are any issues. Um, I, I don't know. I've also, you know, had a lot of clients ask questions about automation in PV, where they're like, are we going to, you know, replace the need for human beings to install solar panels with 
robots that can autonomously install them at quicker rates. So I don't see that as becoming a big deal, at least in PV. But with EVs, I think maybe you need to draw something from Isaac Asimov. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> I, have, I have two thoughts about this. One is tactically, I don't think labor costs are that big of a deal. Like if you look yeah. at like battery packs, right? The, the There are these huge factors of like, lithium prices and like the availability of technology and like the supply chain, all this stuff. And, you know, Ford being like, Oh, like labor prices are going to make it uneconomical. is like, that's totally ridiculous. So like, that's just obviously not true. Right. Especially because like China where all the batteries are manufactured is not even that cheap in terms of labor anymore. It's, it's not the lowest labor cost country by a significant margin. Right. Um, but those battery pack manufacturing sites are centralized there because that's where the technology is and that's where the supply chain is. And that's where the lithium processing is. Right. Um, so this idea that, that the, the strike or the labor situation is going to be a deal breaker is to me, it's pretty patently ridiculous. Yeah. It, it's kind of, you know, it's opportunistic on both sides, right? Like, like you were saying earlier, the, the automakers are to some degree trying to use this transition to, you know, get more of the jobs into non-union states and, and get away from relying on the unions as much. And then unions are trying to use the fact that there's all this public support for these technologies to um, uh, to just kind of uh, strong arm the, the leverage, the political support for getting the automakers to to be more labor friendly. So I actually don't see it as opportunistic per se. Right. And what I mean by that is there is a relationship between the the mode of production if you will the technology and the social relations right um and i think this is true of a lot of i think a lot of sustainable technologies are going to come with a heightened power or heightened uh bargaining position for labor right because fundamentally the argument the the challenge with sustainable technologies the point is you know that you're trying to improve society somewhat Right. <laughs> like if you just didn't care um, or you have the you just you were producing a technology that, you know, you're just sticking to gas cars. Right. It, it's you can make the argument. It's like, look, we, we just don't care about any of these external factors. But the whole we're reason that you're maximizing shareholder value, we're just maximizing shareholder value. Mm-hmm. Right. Burn, baby, burn. Uh, drill, baby, drill. But the whole point of doing this sustainable technology, whether it's solar, or wind or, or electric vehicles is that you are acknowledging a non shareholder value concern that you are trying to address. Right. And that fundamentally a, from a technology perspective, I think that changes people's relationship with the technology, with the car. It's like, why are you buying an EV? You're buying an EV because you care about a certain set of factors. Right. Um, And maybe, maybe that relationship, the consumer relationship will change over time as they become more ubiquitous and less of a specific like choice you have to go out of your way to make. Um, but certainly for the corporations, for the companies involved, uh, they are being forced to acknowledge non-shareholder concerns, right? And the, tech, the fundamental nature of the technology is such is one that you produce because of those things. So I think that just gets to the point of... Um, just creating a stronger environment for labor. I don't think it's a surprise or I don't think it's an accident or I, I don't really see it as opportunistic. Yeah, it's it's not an accident. And I, I think, you know, for more about this, come come join our Lux Forum on October 24th in New York City where you can listen to me talk about this. 
Um, yeah, it's not an accident. Basically, it's it's that that that, that this is happening now, and we're going to see this continue to happen. And I think ultimately, the needle is going to shift more towards these these labor concerns or this labor power in this sustainable era because of the the sort of the, the changing relationship between the production. Yeah, but I think like what you said is important though. It's it's uh, that is true. Um, some of the tactics I would, you know, maybe are still opportunistic, but I think the fundamental truth here is that, you know, these system transitions, energy transition, circular economy, consumer health, all these things that we, we, we talk about all the time are fundamentally being driven much more by social concerns, you know, about the environment, about the climate, about health, rather than by simply by, you know, purely techno-economic factors. And that means that a lot of different social concerns, including labor, are going to be much more bound up in these in the, the decisions. I think it comes mainly through the channel of, of public policy, but, uh, but, but definitely not only that because of the, you know, the fact that people are thinking in these, these different sorts of ways about, about sustainability or about resiliency and, 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 and robustness and uh, national autonomy or, or whatever the other other factors might be um, is just bringing a lot more consideration of those other factors into these into the decisions that that companies and, and innovators are making. Okay, we're gonna leave it there. I want to encourage everyone, as Mike said, register for our New York City forum on October the twenty fourth. That will be basically uh, two weeks, I think, after this. Uh, this episode goes out or maybe even one, one week. week one week after this episode oh boy i gotta i gotta send some emails um one week after this episode comes out register for our other forums as well check them out um i'll be at all three of the next forums so if you love the podcast you can come and say i love the podcast to me in person i guess i don't know where i was going with that <laughs> get anthony to autograph your favorite podcast player i don't know I will take autograph your phone. iPhone. Yeah, I will absolutely take a Sharpie to your iPhone. If the phone doesn't overheat. but uh... If the phone doesn't overheat, yeah. <sighs> All right. Bye. Innovation Matters is a production of Lux Research, the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm. You can follow this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want more, check out www.luxresearchinc.com slash blog for all of the latest news, opinions, and articles.